1: Hello everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today we'll be talking to Jörg Heber, Editorial Director of PLOS and Editor-in-Chief of PLOS One. Not closed, open. Open with a capital O, as in open access. That is the watchword at Public Library of Science, for short, PLOS, a nonprofit open access publisher, and at PLOS One, the journal which has become the organization's grand success, which success has been and continues to be a general success for open access science. PLOS's stated goals are these: advance research faster, share more broadly, transform transform science through inclusivity, credit, transparency communicate research more fairly and more accurately, and build a foundation of knowledge from which we all advance. PLOS One, as PLOS's largest among a suite of journals, is an online-only journal that publishes primary research, systematic reviews, qualitative research, as well as reports on methods, software, or tools. The publication numbers would stagger many journal teams The number of academic editors and editorial board members reaches 10,000. PLOS ONE pursues a multidisciplinary coverage that sets it apart from the ever-specializing, ever-narrowing publishing venues of the sciences. Since its inception in 2006, PLOS ONE has been at the forefront of open access publishing, and today, against the trend to equate impact factors with journal names, Plus one does not promote their own impact factor, because the measure has been shown to be unrefined and at best only an approximate indicator of research significance. In true plus fashion, plus one offers an alternative in various article-level metrics. These ALMs make a closer, tighter fit between value of research and quantifiable measures. Jörg Heber is editor in chief. Tracking Jörg Heber's career in publishing you get the sense of a clear mission make accessible good science and make doing that the publishing of good science openly accessibly make all of that not only viable but enviable scholarly communication this special series on the new books network has the aim of showing just how research gets published a podcast about how knowledge gets known Everyone from first-year college students to tenured professors knows what research looks like because they either have been taught or have themselves taught how to do it. The same cannot be said about publishing. Scholarly communication wants to help change that. Scholarly communication wants to reveal to researchers and readers alike just how essential communication is to their research. Because we believe that communication improves when people understand how communication happens. We believe, too, that... Research improves when researchers better understand their roles as authors. A journal as vital to communication in the sciences as PLOS One, a journal spreading as much scientific knowledge as PLOS One, cannot be missed. That's why today I'm happy to talk with the editor-in-chief, Jörg Heber. Jörg, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. Very good. Um... I'd like uh, if you could start by uh, just telling listeners about yourself, about your career, what led you into uh, science publication, and uh, perhaps mm. even uh, tell us a word or two about your views uh, on uh, open access.
0: Yeah, my own background is, um, is in physics. Uh, I started in Germany and in uh, the United Kingdom, um, I pursued initially research um, as, as what is called postdoc, so did, did work in research labs uh but after a few years i was uh, reassessing my my career and and thinking um you know what what are my career options um and something that has always also interested me is this kind of the writing editing um side um even at high school i took part in you know editing the the high school newsletter and, and those kind of things um and um at the same time, I was uh, also the research that I was doing was fairly narrow. So, if you do experiments as a researcher, you have a very deep understanding of a particular topic. Um, but I was also interested in, in broader topics, in uh, broader themes. So that kind of prompted me to apply for a position at um, um, at, a, at a scientific journal um, called Nature Materials, which is a material science journal, so close to my own scientific background. Um, and yeah, and then I, I I got the job there. I I, I loved it. Um, it um, again, it was it was very broad in on the scientific perspective that I had on the view of different scientific topics. Um, I enjoyed looking at um, other people's manuscripts, um, preparing them for publication, assessing them, um, and and all. All these kind of items um, and then a few years later um, i had the opportunity uh, to broaden my expertise even further so i became um, a managing editor for the entire physical sciences um, for a journal called nature communications and there i was responsible for managing a team that looked at manuscripts across physics chemistry um, earth sciences um, geology and so on um, and yeah, I enjoyed that. It. It, it kind of broadened my view even more, um, beyond physics and, um, material science. And, um, I eventually, I became the executive editor for the journal. So I was, I was leading that journal as a, as a whole. So that brought my scope even further towards biology and, um, kind of my interest, my, my interest in, in the different sciences, um, was 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 really satisfied, and it was it was really great to uh, great to work at that journal. And then uh, four years ago, um, I had the opportunity um, to lead Plus One, which, as you say, is a very large journal. We um, get about thirty six thousand uh, submissions of scientific studies every year, and publish about half of them. Uh, so it is a very very large journal, and it's also even broader. It also has uh, clinical research. It has uh, life sciences or so biology and has uh, physics chemistry and also some social sciences so it's a very very broad kind of scope journal and allows me also to you know to to follow up my interest in, in all the different sciences and um look at editorial policies editorial standards across different disciplines um, and yeah that has fascinated me and then, as you say the other fast the other facet of that is also that um I'm, I'm very keen on um, open access to research so that is everybody should be able to read a scientific study um, and nature communications where I was before and plus one in particular they're both open access journals um, where anyone can read what they publish um, and at plus one we try to be also very accessible um, to our authors we try to keep the fees. Um, fairly low or are waiving them um so that every anyone can publish as they like um, with us um and yeah sort of this kind of mission towards more openness in in research and um opening the scientific process by giving access to everybody to the results of it is something that also um uh, that i'm very keen on pursuing and and and, and strengthening
1: okay um I find interesting uh, this this uh, common background you share with other editors, where they all have a background in science, all were doing hmm. primary research, and um, at some point felt a sort of narrowness in the view, and were so curious or interested, as as you've made very clear in your own case, uh, to sort of broaden that view and to come in contact with uh, the other sciences. Um, does does that serve an editor in in uh, such a uh, specialized journals or, or in science journals generally? Uh, does that serve an editor quite well? Do you think that sort of broad curiosity, but still grounded background in in one particular area?
0: Yes, I think that is a common theme amongst um, also the editors in the staff editors in my team um, at the journal. Um, it is what draws. A lot of people to editing being able to leverage your own expertise and background um yet at the same time um seeing what a, a large number of research groups and researchers are doing in, in 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 a particular field and in related fields it gives you a very broad exposure exposure and it also gives you very good access to that research because you are interfacing with these researchers you, you're going to talk to them about your research uh, you, you try to understand the study you try to see whether that can be improved or whether it has any flaws uh, through what's called the peer review process um, where we ask other scientists uh, for advice on whether a study should be published or not um, so there is is a strong dialogue going on with the researchers um, and with many researchers so um, for anyone who loves science and loves the scientific process and is curious about not just a particular topic but about many topics um, you know this is an ideal place to be
1: Okay. Uh, one thing that you bring up there that I find interesting is, is your, uh, I don't want to say mediating position, but you're certainly standing between some different groups. You're perhaps turning to, as you said, another scientist to ask, um, were these methods good with these materials, right for this particular experiment and so on. And you're making your own judgments on the material. Um, also in connection with what you said about the different editorial policies across the disciplines, as you said, that you're facing. Um, my question is this, uh, do you find that the different communities of scientists or the different communities of specialized backgrounds, do you find them uh, somehow speaking differently, somehow thinking differently? Do you notice different cultures of thought in those areas?
0: Um Yes and no. I mean, the the basic of the the scientific process is obviously always objectivity, logic, reasoning, um, understanding data or making forecasts about it. Um, So I think um, some of the underlying processes, at least in the natural sciences, um, are the same across subject areas, but then different areas have different needs. There there are some research areas... um, let's say in astrophysics uh, where there's a, a number of telescopes and these are resources that are shared by scientists so enabled to to do research um, you know this this stimulates more collaboration between researchers in other areas um, they can work in a lab laboratory can everybody can do their own research um, and um, there there the collaboration also takes place but it has a different different nature because then everybody is an expert on a particular Experiment and then collaborates with other people um, around that. Um, whereas, as I said in other fields, it's more like the instruments. So it's it's a requirement on on the research itself um, that changes a little bit some of that. Um, but yeah, but I think the underlying thinking and uh, scientific process is fairly similar.
1: Okay, so major instances of people not understanding what the other group were trying to do, what a particular experiment was aiming at. You haven't encountered things like that all that often I'm hearing then.
0: Well, I mean, there's always uh, sort of, <laughs> maybe <laughs> there's, there's always discussion in the scientific community around certain things, and people are questioning. I mean, sort of interroga- in, interrogating other people's results, other researchers' results, is part of the process too. So, I mean, healthy debate um, around research whether something has been done in the right way or um, you know, everything had been considered. That's important for a particular experiment. I mean, these kind of debates are always taking place. Um, so it's uh, there's always some some sort of consensus that emerges at the end of it. But um, the scientific process itself can also be fairly noisy with people are having different opinion and it needs a number of experiments to to reach a certain consensus.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, though. If I if I might just follow up the question, because I find it quite interesting. Um, as you say, quite clearly, uh, the sciences are all working on the same scientific method. And there's a huge shared base. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, about 50% of, of your submissions are obviously not ending up uh, published in the journal. And yep. I wonder if... Um, If some of that comes also from, uh, as you say, there's then people who uh, question a particular method, question a particular set of the results, or perhaps an interpretation of those results, the results are sound, but the interpretation. Um, Where do you think some of that uh, different thinking or different way of doing um, is coming from? Do you have the feeling that people whose work is perhaps not so widely sharing in the consensus is just not so well done, or that they're really trying to push a new view or they have just a new approach that hasn't reached everyone
0: yet? Um, Yeah, it's it's a a little bit bit of everything, obviously. Um, I mean, there can be different opinion about the interpretation of data. Um, The data itself can be fairly noisy and uh, messy. So interpreting data can sometimes be a challenge um, and, and reaching conclusions from there. But it's also, yeah, how, how an experiment is done. Is, is it done in a, in a matter that actually supports um, reaching any conclusion or has something been forgotten? Has, is, are there big gaps in it? Um, so that's part of the assessment process that we do at our journals to assess whether um, an experiment has been conducted in a rigorous manner. But um, yeah, methodological weaknesses where some experiments have not been done right—you um, know—that that typical causes why a study will not be published. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, one last point on on your own background, uh, which I found very interesting. Working at the high school newspaper and generally being interested in writing and editing—that's um, not something that I would say you necessarily necessarily share with the majority of scientists. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, could you speak uh, a little bit to uh, your, if I might go so far as to say, your love of writing?
0: Um. Yeah. I mean, I. This sort of science communication that is obviously also a big part of why we are in publishing it's not just that we get to able to read all the interesting research that is going on we also want to communicate it um to to a broad public um and 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 this kind of science communication um has interested me i i like writing i did i did um also, when I was an editor, I did a lot of freelance writing. I wrote like two f- news features for uh, Nature, which is a major of journal in the, f- in the sciences um, and others. So I also enjoy I, I enjoy the writing part and, and the communication part because, I, I mean, everybody who works in publishing is also a passion for the science, and we want to make sure that we communicate the scientific results and, and the scientific research um, to a broad audience. Um, and... Yeah, that's, that's a passion that I also share with many in, in our industry.
1: Okay, um, let's get down a little bit closer to uh, PLOS One, uh, the journal itself. Um, would it be possible for you to sort of take us through a typical day for you as editor-in-chief, or mm-hmm. a typical week if your days are so different from one to the next? <laughs>
0: Yeah, the days can be very different, but um, sort of one of the constraints um, for my days is that half my team is in the United Kingdom and the other half um, is in the United States, most of them um, in the San Francisco um, area where I'm based. So because of the large time difference, what it usually means is that my mornings are full with meetings so that we use a time where we can all talk together um, and interface with each other. So usually. I start my day, days fairly early in the morning, 7, 7 a.m., 8 a.m. in the morning, um, have, have a string of meetings with different people, different groups, um, sort of coordinating items, meeting with the editors um, at the journal, uh, you know, those kind of things. Then usually following from there, I spend a lot of time answering emails. Um, So I like to be approachable as editor-in-chief of Plus One, even though the journal is so large. Um, So my email address is on our website. Anybody can contact me. Authors contact me to follow up. On papers um, uh, about their submission and if they have any question, so either I pass on those emails or I answer them myself. Um, so I spend um, quite a bit of time in uh, around that in the morning as well, and then usually in the in the afternoons I have a bit more time to think about projects or, or um, uh, to provide input into projects. Um, you know, consider editorial policies that um, that we may introduce or changes to our processes or um, um, the way that we handle manuscripts i that's also the time when um some problematic paper if that is escalated to me when i uh, i'm able to look at them and and sort of provide advice um, to the journal staff um, is how we should handle that situation Um, so you should that's that's what then covers my afternoons (laughs)
1: <laughs> okay, that's a pretty
0: full day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, as,
1: as far as uh, PLOS One is concerned, I think I made uh, quite clear in the beginning, please add, though, anything that you'd like to, that we're dealing with uh, open access and we're dealing with a real belief in this uh, idea that science needs to get out there to everyone and not for any barriers to be in the way. Um, it seems also, and one of the words I used there was that was that this is viable. Um it seems like there would be no reason not to do science this way. Um the more time you spend uh I myself am a writing teacher, the more time you spend talking to biologists or chemists or other scientists like that, they really are primarily interested in advancing the research. I mean that's what they that's what they signed up for. <laughs> yeah. Um and so I wonder uh to get to my question, I wonder how does uh, PLOS One position itself amongst other journals, journals that are operating on a similar type of uh, open access system and the more traditional or conventional forms? Um, could you say something to the, the field of journals around PLOS One?
0: Yeah, so Plus One's mission is to publish um, all the science, regardless of its impact. Um, so there are some journals who try to filter out the best of the best uh, research st- studies and try to only publish those, um, even though there's a very subjective process. What may be a very interesting topic right now may may just not be relevant five years down the line or something, a study that looks very dull and uninteresting right now may be actually a hugely important uh, advance for the field, as it turns out, a few years later. So, what Plus One is trying to do is to be a home for all the science, um, regardless of its impact. Um, the only requirement that we have is a study is um, it's rigorously conducted, so it is valid. Um, it's it, and it has a valid research question, so it has to have a scientific question that's been addressed. Um, and sort of along with the mission to be a home for all the science, we also like to make sure that we are able to communicate that. So that's why we have our open access um, policy where all the research that we publish is, is made available for free. Um, Plus itself is a nonprofit organization. So we try, uh, we are not benefiting commercially from, from publishing uh, our papers. Um, and as I mentioned, the journal is also very broad in scope. Um, so I think it's a mix of that that sets it apart from competitors. We do have other competitors um, or other journals that are operating similar policy. I mean, Plus One was the first one that had like the mission of being very broad in topic and also publishing anything that is valid research. Um, there's now um, a few other journals that are doing something similar, which is great because it removes the pressure from scientists to always try to have convince an editor oh my paper is very important for the field you should publish it these kind of discussions are not needed um and there's now as i said a number of other journals but i think what sets plus one apart is um sort of its mission um towards open access and also something we call open research where we not just want to publish the paper we also want to make sure that the data that goes through the paper is also published so we have a policy around that Um, we want to open the research process uh um, and that sets us apart um as well and as i mentioned uh we also non-profit some of our competitors are with commercial companies um and yeah that's something we, we would not like to go down that way
1: mm-hmm. i uh, am quite interested in the question of uh when when impact of research current impact of research. Uh, is taken as the reason why uh, an article or research would be published or not, where subjectivity enters into the matter or Mm -hmm. predictions as to how these sorts of lines of research are going to play out over the next five or so years. Uh, yeah. Whereas PLOS-1, as you made very clear, is interested in the soundness of the science, mm-hmm. not necessarily the significance of the findings, because that's uh, really anybody's <laughs> <a> guess, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, for a um, researcher submitting uh, to PLOS one what would you say then uh, should be their priority so that their research got out there?
0: I mean, the priority is follow the standards in in your field, in 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 the ex- experiments or modelling or theory that you're doing. Um, make sure that you have a, a good description of what you want to achieve in that in that research project or in that study. Um, so that is what we call the research question. So that is that this is laid out um, fairly clearly, um, and then yeah, and then make sure that everything that that is described is transparent. Um, um, that others can potentially reproduce the work. Um, so that's always one of the important items is in publishing that other people can also build and and first of all reproduce the study so that they can see okay this is that this works <laughs> in the way described. Uh, but then also build on it. So um, putting all the ingredients out there for other scientists that are important for them to to do for this scientific process um, is then the other ingredients um and i should say i mean we we are not interested uh, necessarily if someone asks a question does x cause y we're not interested whether the answer is yes or no there's a number of journals that would only publish what's called positive results so if there's like a, a positive finding but we are um we are also interested in um in publishing the, the null or negative results which is where someone tries to ask a question and says, is, that, is there a correlation or is there a connection between some two different things and comes up with the answer of no, then we find that this may also be a valuable insight for other researchers. So we also publish those studies. Um, yeah. So describe describe all of that, what you've done, um, you know, laid, laid out in front of um, the other researchers. This this would be the key advice.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh- People interested in language and writing uh, research are interested in really specific questions, so I'm going to follow up one point you made there sure. about, the re- about the research question itself. Um, mm-hmm. There's different ways for that to actually enter into the text. It can be an indirect question. We wanted mm-hmm. to know whether or not it uh, can be just implicitly left there. These are the mm-hmm. things that we're interested in, or it could be literally a question um, yeah. whether or not this has actually happened, question mark. Uh, mm-hmm. th- does that form that it takes in the actual text, is? would you prefer one or the
0: other of those? Uh, no, because there's different ways of how you can do research. One would be that you actually ask a question before and then test the answer. And the other one is what's called more exploratory research, where you just interested in some topic and say, hmm, "Let's see what what we find there." <laughs> and you don't have necessarily a question; you just like to see whether there's any anything that's not known or interesting. Um, and we and obviously we publish both. Um, if you have a clear question that you like to be answered um, and and have designed your research around that, then it should be described um, in the introduction of the paper. If it has been more like um, an exploration of a certain topic, um, then this would not necessarily be phrased in a way that. Um, but looking back, you just say, "Oh, we found this." So, what? What? How can we find a question for that result that we got? That's not necessarily how that needs to be done. Uh, so, just describing that research effort and and what's what what someone finds and what is new about it or, um, or unknown that that has been uncovered, I think that works as well. So, it depends mm-hmm. on the type of study.
1: Okay, thank you. Um... One thing uh, that there's quite a lot going on at uh, PLOS One, if anyone spends time on the website, you'll see Mm -hmm. all the different initiatives that um, PLOS One is involved with. And I'm sure, Jörg, you can tell us a bit more about them. Just last week, um, as far as I could see, was Open Access Week. And uh, there I read about uh, Open with Purpose, which um, showed a science magazine magazine science journal, excuse me, doing things uh, that were slightly beyond science. But this isn't entirely out of character with PLOS. Um, I think, for instance, of the PLOS channels that are out there, which are trying to uh, reach broader audiences with primary research. Um, Could you perhaps tell us a bit of that side of the of the uh, journal?
0: Yeah, I mean, since since we are open access, we obviously have um, a, a fairly broad readership. So it's not just the researchers that read our studies; it's also um, anyone who has an interest on a particular topic. Um, and we can see that in in some studies are very popular um, for for a, a broader audience. Um, so yeah, being open about that and making and and being good science communicators that communicate science. Um, to, to a broad public um, that that is very important to us um, we try to find ways of um how we can highlight good research um you mentioned the alternative metrics um, earlier so that, that is a way of how you can see whether a study that we published has resonated a lot with an audience and we try we try, we try also try to expose those and, and say okay you know this there seems to be kind of a, an important... Um, an interesting study that has a lot of resonance with other researchers. Um, so these kind of communications, are, these kind of facets are very important to us. Um, and obviously at plus we also recognize, you know, we are embedded in a, in a broad society. So research does not happen alone. A lot of studies that we publish are also about, you know, about the broader society um, and related to some you know, some, some social yep. scientists as well, as I mentioned. Um, so they op- also obviously find, find broad resonance and we need to be also take due care in, in publishing those studies. For example, we published a paper three years ago or, f- uh, or four years ago on, uh, racial bias in police shootings, uh, in the United States. And that had like a million downloads. Um, so had a broad resonance and, and, um, broad readership. um, And we need to recognize that for some of the studies that we publish.
1: And uh, if you might uh, say, who is actually then uh, writing, say, on the PLOS channels? Who is um, changing some Mm -hmm. of the science that is clearly meant in the research articles and in the raw data to be for the specialists uh, to put it into a form so that it reaches uh, a public who, or even other scientists who are far outside of uh, Mm -hmm. that person's specialty?
0: Yeah, what we usually do in in, in these kind of situations, also for the channels, is we have like guest editors. Uh, so that's other researchers um, that know about the research um, and then write about it. Um, so that that is um, one way of keeping keeping the text. Uh, fairly informed and, and valid because another expert is, is writing about it, um, but also independent of the original researchers. So it's a, it's an unbiased, uh, neutral assessment um, of studies. And yeah, and that's, um, that is one way of how we kind of communicate about papers. We sometimes have that also at plus One and uh, the other Plus journals too.
1: Another of your uh, roles at uh, plus One is to be the curator of the Open Science Newsletter. Mm -hmm. Um, And I read in last week's a topic which is uh, close to my heart. Uh, English, uh, well, uh, people who have English as an additional language, EAL people, as we call them, um, who uh, have obvious disadvantages in preparing or publishing scientific papers in a language that's not their first language. Um, There was some some report on on some of those obstacles, some of them being linguistic, of course, as I've just mentioned, but others also being uh, financial. Uh, There was a report there on uh, Colombian researchers. Uh, What would, uh, in your opinion, for PLOS One be a matter of language that could get in the way of publication? Or if I might phrase it differently, when do you find that someone's English is actually hampering the publication process?
0: It starts to be a problem if um, sort of the English makes it difficult to assess the science. Um, So what you want to do is is publish valid science and and have others understand and reproduce it. So if the level of the language is not sufficient um, to convey the research that has been done, then this starts to become a problem. Um, I mean, there's different ways of how that can be addressed, Um, either by asking someone to take a look over the paper. There's some commercial services that we're not affiliated with that offer something as well. Um, or you can just read another person's paper um, and, and try to learn from them how they are written without copying the text um, of someone else. Um, but so the language problem, I, I acknowledge this, is, this can be a, a, a big barrier. And as I said, we're keen to publish from all over the world. Um, and we have a very broad international authorship. Um, and so they sometimes run run in, in, into this kind of obstacle uh, with English not being their first language, and it's something in science publishing that, that is that is a concern because it puts a disadvantage on on them. They they first have to master the language, and then they can worry about the research uh, that they're going to describe. Whereas others don't have the same barrier, so there's there's a problem of um, equality in in publishing. Um, and so that's that's certainly something that we that we are aware of. Um, it's not an easy answer um, because it's also not so easy right now to just translate texts uh, of a scientific nature into different languages very easily. So um, what we try to do is we try to be fairly flexible. If there's like minor mistakes in the paper, um, I believe um, you know we should be flexible flexible around that. Uh, and, and be forgiving and not expect um, the highest level of the English language from all submissions. So that's what we not, don't do. Um, but we also try to work with authors um, and flag up issues in the paper if you feel there has been a misunderstanding or there may be a potential of misunderstanding. So we point that out to them uh, so that they can improve potentially their study. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible that,
1: of course, as we've just talked about, uh, someone is using English as an additional language. And of course, that will perhaps cause some troubles. But it's also possible that someone, uh, even a native uh, speaker of English, doesn't necessarily have the best of writing skills. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And um, you talked about the heights of the best of English language. Um, I'm interested in uh, questions of style and research, content and form, and if you might just uh, say a word or two about how it is that the written text itself impresses upon you, do you have the feeling that when you're reading research that's being sent in that you're sort of just seeing right through the prose as if it was a window and getting the content, or do you sometimes have the feeling that the, let's say, the rhetoric of the way that the text has been formulated it's also impressing you in a certain fashion and maybe also affecting the way you think about the work?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, a, a well written paper is, is obviously easier to read and, um, and and to pass for the scientific content. Um, and, and everybody has a preference in writing style. So it may, what may someone's preference for writing may not be another editor's preference for writing uh, that you like to see in an, from an author. Um, what I always try, also when I handle manuscript myself, is to be objective and not influence that any decision around um, the science of a study. I'm, I, what I try to do is to look through the prose, as you say, um, and understand the science that had been done. Um, and you know, if the paper is, is very, very well written, that makes the process easier. But it should not be a decision for, for me as an editor of a scientific journal. To decide um, whether to pursue publication of, of that study or not, um, it certainly it certainly helps with readers as well. Obviously, um, it helps others to understand the science, um, but you know to overcome some of these access problems for into science publishing. What I try, what I try as an editor is to only look at the science and uh, look through the language um, and into the science itself, um, and, and I think that's very important.
1: Mm -hmm. I see, uh, that, uh, plus also has a writing center on its uh, page, trying to, uh, help a few people along with some basic tips, uh, there was one uh, great tip in there that I really liked is to go through your article backwards <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to uh, yep. improve uh, the editing process so that you're not missing things, so that you see how your thought uh, arrived somewhere later in, in, the, in the writing. Um, an interesting tip. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you know if uh, this is a place that you're finding authors go to? Have you heard authors mentioning it and saying uh, this or that I found helpful?
0: So the writing center we actually just launched. So that is a new was a, a new initiative where we try to assist authors in, in the preparation of the manuscript and just give them tips and tricks um, on how they how they can phrase and improve um, improve the writing of the paper. It is meant to be as as a guide so yeah we're hoping that it's going to be useful and that uh, many authors will take a look Um, there's some some fairly easy tips in there that um, can help with any study uh, or any paper regardless how long or how many papers you have already already written going back to some of the basics and um, can be very useful
1: um, you say that it was just launched. Is this something that PLOS itself internally uh, launched with their own editors or did you have yep. any? Um, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, maybe to close off uh, style so that we can come back to more issues of <laughs> research and the actual publication process. Um, One last thing uh, I'd like uh, to know is what it is that you think – this you can also answer personally, your own taste. As you mentioned, style is is sometimes different from one editor to the next. What do you think that it is in most editors' minds when they're reading each sentence, one after the other? Do you think – that uh, they're paying attention in any way to uh, the words that are chosen, whether these are also technical terms or not, if there was perhaps yeah. a better technical term, a more accurate one? Or do you think that uh, their eye is just as much over to the figures, the tables, and the relations that are being made between all the data?
0: Yeah, no, the language can be, is or often is, also very, very important, um, especially when it comes to... Um, what, what the authors claim they find um, and this for example in medical publishing can be very important so you know if an author says okay um, this particular medication helps against this particular disease it's it's very important that the language use is, is accurate and correct and not exaggerating any finding for example um, because as I said these papers are free to read anybody can read them and you don't want you want to make sure that what is written in the paper is, Actually, matching of the data that is being described. Um, so, looking at the language and seeing that all the claims that are being made is is very important. Um, so, just that you stay accurate as well. Um, so, going through the language of the paper, yes, um, that is that is obviously very important to understand the science, understanding the methods, how something has been done, what kind of data analysis has been has been conducted on the data, um, all these kind of things. There's often a lot of nuances in the text um, because sometimes the papers are also written very brief in, in, a, in a very concise manner. Um, so understanding these nuances is obviously very important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: things along the lines of this is the case or in fact yeah. we know and so on, these sorts of formulations might initially raise a red flag in, in an editor's
0: mind. Exactly. When it says this will treat X when in fact it may only may have a like a slightly beneficial impact, it it so that would be a complete exaggeration, for example. Yeah. So it can really turn on a word
1: like treat. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, okay very good. Um Talking more about uh, open access, uh, I see that uh, just this month uh, there was a publication by uh, Zudewick et al. uh, talking about what drives uh, researchers uh, to share and use open research data a topic that you mentioned earlier, and mm. what might make them reluctant. Uh, could you uh, perhaps give your own views on this? Uh, because as you said, PLOS One is looking to get uh, the research data out there together with um, other parts of uh, the research process, particularly, of course, the article itself.
0: Yeah, yeah, we have we are very interested in that in that topic, and we have a policy in place for the for the past six years where we ask researchers to disclose the data, um, at least the data that's relevant for the findings as they are described in in a, in a study. Um, and yeah, and there's there's, there's obviously a, a large benefit for all the readers, but from the author side, sometimes there's a reluctance reluctance to share. Um, for, for various reasons. Um, one might be that they want to further analyze the data and write more studies about it and don't want sort of competitors in, in, in the field, other scientists to, to see the data yet. Um, and, and sort of like to keep it for their, for, uh, for their own view at the moment. Um, so that, that is a fairly common one or, Maybe they think about commercializing some research and and would not like to disclose um, data for that reason. Um, It's also obviously a lot more effort to share the data. You have to bring it in in good shape. You have to curate it. You have to upload it somewhere. Um, And this can be fairly large data files. Um, So it's not without effort. So it takes time and effort as well. Um, There's a number of reasons uh, why researchers are can be reluctant, but I also believe that there's a more of a momentum towards this kind of openness. So I think we should just generally understand now that if you share data, others can work with it and can verify the data um, and, and can verify your study. So I think that the momentum is increasing towards sharing it.
1: So this is, in your opinion, then an, another one of the new advances in, in open access science.
0: Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of opening up the process. There's also, I mentioned methods before, how, how is an experiment conducted often the way that this is described in a scientific study is very brief and um, leaving out all the details that are actually very important. Um, So when it says you need to shake a certain chemical compound, uh, it usually doesn't say in a paper for how long or on, you know what? What does shaking mean? <laughs> what with what kind of force? Um, but that can determine the outcome of a of a, of, an, of a study completely. Um, so having more details around uh, the experimental methods are used in a paper is, is is like another aspect of that. For example,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this. Puts me in mind, actually, of uh, something that's being talked about in uh, writing research in recent years about the replication crisis that um, the sciences are facing. I'm not sure if the word crisis is perhaps an exaggeration, but there certainly is concern about uh, studies being replicable, as you say. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would seem that, uh, at least this is how some people think about it, it would seem that the drive for impact, the drive for novelty in research is one of the reasons why methods then tend to suffer. Methodological rigor comes in second place to making sure that the research gets out and uh, impresses, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you subscribe to that? Do you see one as perhaps working against that trend?
0: Uh, Yes, of course. I mean, by trying to be open, by um, having these kind of uh, policies around data, for example, Yes, we um, definitely. We also have um, sort of sort of others specific policies to assist with that. Where, for example, certain where we require certain things to be done in a in a certain manner or or to be disclosed, the method to be disclosed. Um, you know, there's there's for certain, for some research fields there's particular policies around that. Um, we just like to make sure that the research is reproducible and. Um, that everything that is in the, described in the paper is, is also accurate um, and, and that all the data is disclosed. So, yeah, that, that is one of the um, major underlying uh, drivers of, 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 for example, our policy to request the data because that's, that's how other people can ensure that the research is actually reproducible if they can, if they can take the data and reproduce the findings, for example.
1: What do? You, what is your opinion about uh, the registered reports? Um, this new method that's being used as uh, a way to perhaps help uh, science scientific experiments uh, be replicable. Um, so.
0: It's-
1: yeah, sorry I'll, I'll, I'll ask that again um, registered reports uh, it's kind of a stu- two stage oh. model in uh, peer review uh, and uh, mm-hmm. some people are uh, for instance the Royal society uh, Royal Society open science has used it in its journal um, as a way of hopefully making it so that scientists aren't mismotivated in trying to make impact and doing their primary job which seems to be to be methodologically rigorous
0: Yes. So, what we what we do with registered reports, um, um, this is actually something that I'm fairly excited about. It's it's um, something that we just launched earlier this year. Is that we ask researchers? Um, it is a scheme where we ask researchers to submit um, the design of an experiment before they actually do it. Um, and um, then we look it over it. Um, and if you find it interesting, we say we will publish your paper if you follow exactly that design, um, regardless of the outcome. So, regardless whether the outcome is positive or negative, which is something I mentioned earlier. So, um, whether the finding is. Um, you know, some some new discovery or whether the finding is, okay, no, this didn't work. We, we will promise to publish a paper as long as the research is executed in the same way that uh, the, the researchers would say they will. Um, and so it the benefit is that it avoids this kind of bias from the journal towards the more positive findings um, and, and puts it back to the question itself and say, okay, the question is a valid research question. We like, this seems to be a valid valid. Experiment or valid study that someone tries to conduct, um, and it also helps us, the journal, to assess the research plan and the experiments before they actually take place. Because what happens often um, for us journals is we look, we get a paper submitted, and then some of the experts that we ask they say yes, but a certain key experiment was missing, um, so you know the research is not really valid or not really confirmed until the authors do that particular experiment. So then the authors have to go back and, and do that experiment, and it delays everything. If that is all settled before they actually start doing the experiments, um, it will make that entire process um, much easier. And at the end, the journal has promised to publish this, their research. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that, because i see there's a benefit for authors as well as the journals. Um, it's something that we launched. It's still a, at a fairly small stage. Um, as, as, as it's not very common yet in research to do it like that. Uh, but it is growing and I'm excited about it.
1: That's, that's great to hear because uh, for me as an outsider to science, it seems to make quite a lot of sense. And it also seems to do something that um, is a bit unexpected for someone like me coming from a writing support where most scientists, most students, most faculty members will be very worried about the discussion. Part of their uh, research article. And introductions and abstracts are another one of those common areas where people feel they need to improve their language, they need to get it right. I very rarely hear people talking about methods or results. And from what I'm hearing uh, from you and what I've been reading myself about registered reports, it turns out that that is the base, that is the foundation, that is what the bit yeah. paper is made of and that's what matters most.
0: Mm-hmm. Am I speaking exactly. sense there? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, for register reports, um, how that actually looks like in practice is that the authors almost write the paper without the result section. So they write everything else. They write the abstract, the introduction, and all of that, and and that's what's submitted to the journal, and um, and that forms the basis for our assessment. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, how these sections are hard described and how that is all laid out is then very important, um, and it puts an F puts. More effort uh, or more emphasis um, on those kind of sections as well, and and that's for good reason because we want to make sure that others can understand it, can take that what is described in a in a paper that um, can take that and and do their own research around it.
1: Mm-hmm. Another thing that seems to be moving in a slightly similar direction is uh, the uh, preprints that uh, uh, Plus One has been doing. Um, do you see that as another contribution in the same way to getting it so that uh, the science is sound?
0: Yes. I mean, preprints um, are an, an important or increasingly important aspect of the research process. What it is, is um, it's a platform that's usually independent of journals um, where researchers can post um, a draft of the paper that they submit uh, or plan to submit um, on there so everybody can already read it. Um, it is not peer-reviewed, so it's not assessed for rigor or, or the results or for the language in it. It's just the pure draft as a scientist has written it. Uh, but it speeds up the entire process because um, other researchers can look at them, can read them. And if they're expert in the field, they can also have their own views and thoughts about it. But it is, it is a very fast mechanism of sharing the the results of a study early on um, and it cuts, cuts away the process of, of the journal, the journal comes in later. Um, the journal will then peer review the study. It will change. Um, potentially, will, uh, you know, um, and the, the fully peer reviewed paper will then publish, be published by a journal. But this is a way of, of communicating with other researchers very early on about the data. Uh, it's one more, one more uh, of these ways of opening up the research process.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh There's so many different ways that <laughs> Plus One does that, and uh, more than we can probably talk about now. I'm thinking also of the initiative for open abstracts, the initiative for open citation. Um, one though that I would like to touch on at least is um, transparent peer review. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think last week was a uh, peer review week, and mm-hmm. uh, transparent peer review is uh, something that uh, Plus One, amongst other journals, have uh, been uh, developing. Uh, PLOS One or PLOS itself actually even uh, has its own peer review center situated right next to the writing center. So uh, obviously the reviewers themselves are uh, a major concern for the journal, making sure that they feel okay with the work they're doing and that they know how to do the work they're doing. But if Mm -hmm. we could get back to this idea of the transparent uh, peer review, could you uh, say how that actually works?
0: Yeah, um, it is something where where we would publish um, the review reports so the expert reports on a study along with a, with a paper by the authors. And so there would be an, an attachment and a supplementary file that is published along with a paper. Um, and the reason why we like to do that or why we, why we offer this to our authors is that um, it just removes kind of the black box of what what's going on in a journal. There's always a notion... Um, Oh, the scientific journals, they do the peer review. And at the end of that, there's this shiny paper that comes out um, that's been validated and that's been discussed. Um, but how does that discussion actually look like? What, ha- what are the questions that the journal has been considering in publishing the research? Uh, what, you know, what, what went on in that entire process? That has always been a, a black box to outsiders. The only one who knew about it for a particular study were the editors, the authors, and the reviewers um so what we are offering is um first of all to give the authors a choice whether they want to do that or not um so we leave that um, decision to the authors um, and about 40 percent at the moment say yes that's what they like to do um and if that's the case we will publish the reports we will not add the names of the reviewers uh, it's just the, the, the anonymous report um the authors will also usually not know the names um so the name of the reviewer will only be published if the reviewer also discloses it to the authors um, and then it would it will also be published um, online but this is a deliberate decision by the reviewers but otherwise it's just um, yeah, it is the entire report it is also the answer of the authors to the reviewers it's because uh, the publication process of my dialogue uh, reviewers write a report and they give the opinion the authors respond and, and you have you have this entire dialogue that's that, that is going on and in some cases the text that's written, it's more than the paper itself, um, and in the end of it, it just gets discarded. The paper gets published, and that's not what you like. So that's why we, why we are keen for authors to to allow or, or to approve the posting of the of the reports. And yeah, um, yeah, we call that transparent peer review um, because it in, increases the transparency of the editorial process.
1: There is in. A- the rhetoric of science and other writing as areas of writing research, this idea that different disciplines represent different communities that think and speak in different ways. And what what I'm hearing you say uh, makes me think of precisely that. As you say, there's a dialogue behind each article. There's a back and forth between the researchers and the reviewers, and things develop, things get answered, other questions get posed, and so on. And uh, I find that quite interesting because it opens up the context of this community, this way of thinking about the world, whether it's in the biological sciences, the physical sciences, wherever it might be. And uh, one of the major challenges that I think a lot of writers of research articles face is this idea of contextualizing their study, their experiment and it would seem that the transparent uh, peer review process is really a, an asset to help them in that area because it shows the thinking of the people involved in their area of study. It shows mm-hmm. the, the, the background logic to the decisions of why one thing got published the way it did and so on. Um, so if I might just uh, formulate this idea a little bit more precisely so that I can get a question out of it. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's most... Uh, Top on most uh, writers' minds is uh, the idea of uh, how do I introduce, how do I situate what it is that I'm that i'm uh, I've experimented on, the results I've come up with? And uh, I was wondering if you could say anything about uh, the question of how researchers might best contextualize their their own special contributions uh, to their particular field in the writing of 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 their uh, articles
0: yeah i mean this is an important aspect that's um always discussed or very often discussed in during the peer review process um it is how you place your finding your study in the context uh, broader context of the field um and uh, sort of the introduction section is very important for that of a study where that usually takes place where you lay out um, the status of the field and how how your own study fits into that um, and what the contributions are potentially of of that work or of the research question, um, and yeah, and obviously that can be also a subjective process. Um, so that's why, as part of the peer review process, that's also something that reviewers we'll usually um, look look at um, and and also comment on. Um, and via the transparent peer review, that would that discussion would obviously also be presented, so that would be a bit more nuanced. Um, but it is it's an area where you know where where this Often changes just to, to to a paper as it is written because maybe the literature description was not accurate some items were missing um, and those kind of things. Um, at plus, because we're online, we don't have a limitation of how many other studies a paper can reference or you know how long that description is. Um, so we also give. Uh, our authors the opportunity to to describe it in any detail that is necessary, um, but yeah, providing the the context and creating a fabric of research. No no study list on its own. It's always embedded in, in in you know in the network of other studies and and creating this network via the references and embedding it into the framework of other studies is obviously very important. Um, and that is something that a lot of reviewers look out for. That's a great
1: image, the uh, fabric, and where mm-hmm. do you embed then your research. I think that's precisely the challenge many uh, researchers are facing is, do I just pick up these two threads or do I grab a whole handful, seven or eight different threads? Uh, where exactly do I find myself? I guess in essence, do I draw the contents uh, the context wide or do I rather draw it narrow? Um, is there any advice that you might be able to give there to someone who is thinking in those two dimensions?
0: Yeah, it should be appropriate for the study as, as it is, um, and and the contribution it makes. It, you don't necessarily um, have to convey the entire history of a research field uh, for for a fairly narrow, specific advance. Um, it it just should be sort of nest for whatever is necessary to describe um, to sc- describe the findings and and the context of the findings. Um, so, being too broad can also be a bit. Uh, not ideal because you know that that can be come across as fairly superficial um being too narrow on the other hand may may have the danger that it's comes across as um missing context or why why is something done um just because you're interested in it um so some of the context may be missing if it's, if 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 it's that description is too narrow. So there's a little bit of that balance. Um, and it depends also on, on, on the scope of the research itself. Um, and so it is a little bit different for uh, for different research types. For example, a study that goes into complete completely new area, opens up a, a new field or opens up a new area of research, for that the description may potentially be a bit more broader than for a study that so there's a particular aspect or a particular point or theme about a, um, about a research field that's otherwise fairly well-known. Um, so it makes a more specific contribution. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a variety in that.
1: Mm-hmm. So would it be a fair assessment to say that if you start out too broad, your readers are most likely to start thinking, why is he... Or she telling me this. <laughs> and if you go yeah. into narrow, the questions that might be raised are too many for the researcher to even proceed.
0: Yeah, or you may just not understand uh, what the context is, why, what, what, what is the research question or why is it relevant? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, perhaps one last uh, area of question uh, that uh, we haven't touched upon is the readership of Plus um, One. I expect you could perhaps say, All scientists (laughs) Um, but uh, if you could perhaps just say a word or two as to how you view your readership how you would perhaps characterize your readership and what else you might know about uh, the readership of the journal
0: yeah so um, because we're open and open access anybody can read um, anybody can read our content Uh, we also anybody can Redistribute our content. So there's platforms what like PubMed um, that redistribute some sometimes content to other researchers. So we don't necessarily have all views on our own homepage. But um, yeah, we know that uh, most most studies are are read by the experts for which they are relevant to. Uh, but there have been some some studies that that have found broader interest uh, because of the topic. Um, it could be something clinical, so that's where someone has a particular interest in in a, in a specific clinical topic. Um, it could be just generally interest, uh, wide wide range topic. I mentioned like a study around police violence and 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 racial profiling um, that had a lot of downloads. So sometimes studies, our studies are also that we publish are read by an audience that may not even be aware that they're on a, on, on a scientific journal homepage. They just read, you know, the results because they came across it via Google or from, from other news organizations. Um, or, or, you know, they're, they're just interested in that particular topic um, and that that particular study. So our readership is fairly diverse. It's also, as you say, it's very international. Um, it's, it's a global authorship as well as a global readership.
1: All right. Well, jorg you've uh, been very generous with your time. Thank you. I'd like to close out with just one final question to you, and um, that is whether you're working on any current projects in or outside of PLOS that are particularly interesting.
0: Yes. Um, so, I mean, one of the one of the key items um, for me is is also improving the diversity, equity, and inclusion at our journals. Um, so that means making sure that um, the journals themselves um, are diverse. Um, have all the different stakeholders represent uh, represented different uh, minority groups worldwide. Uh, that we that our journals uh, do represent the global research community. Um, this is very important. Also that uh, we make sure that um, researchers from all over the world, wherever wherever they are from, have a good access to. The journal and uh, to publishing in the journal so you mentioned the language barrier so that is like something that's um, that is important but also in terms of um, you know getting the science published uh, having no bias against them just because they're from a particular country so making sure that our um, our work is as unbiased as possible Um, and so that that is, that is something that we have begun in the last couple of months to look into more detail um, to see how we can actually improve um, our own efforts, our own diversity and uh, access from, from other researchers, from global researchers uh, to our output to be published and be part of the journal. So I think that's an exciting project. It's very necessary. It's needed. Um, it is very timely because um, you know the progress so far has not been sufficient. Um, and I'm very excited about uh, and very keen to push that forward.
1: Well, that sounds great. Very high ideals, but also very practically approached. I uh, I see a lot of success coming your way with that project. It sounds great. Um, well, thank you very much. That is Jörg Heber, Editorial Director of PLOS and Editor-in-Chief of PLOS One. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Jörg. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, and goodbye to everyone else. Till next time. Bye-bye.